one thing that's very clear and has been replicated in a number of studies over the past year and a half or so, and it's that during COVID-19, during the pandemic in particular, mm -hmm. frequency of social media use has been directly linked to increased depression and no, increased anxiety and or combination of depression and anxiety and mm -hmm. also other mental health conditions, but especially depression and depression combined with anxiety. Uh, not just in young people, but also in adults. We're seeing it everywhere. The, the, the social media seems to be very toxic for people's mental health, especially during the pandemic. Why? Mm -hmm. I don't think we have a why answer yet. Uh, mm -hmm. But we're, some of the things we're talking about might give, you know, clue us in as to what might be going on there. Three, two, one. Welcome to another Nerding Out with That Nerdy Catholic. My name is Seth Payne, That Nerdy Catholic, and we have on again this week uh, Dr. Brent Robbins, who is a professor of psychology. Last week we had a wonderful, uh, long discussion, but a great discussion about, about mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and especially what that means in our modern day, especially thinking about where we are with uh, the cancel culture and this, this people rushing to, to judge and to find justice that has no mercy. But this week, actually even maybe even in, uh, in response to last week, we're going to be talking about emotional health and how to be emotionally healthy online. You know, so we're going to jump into it now. Dr. Brent Robbins, thanks for joining us again. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Seth. It's always fun. Yeah, yeah. So um, this idea of you know thinking about what we we're talking about about uh, mercy and the cancel culture, and you know we got into talking about polarization. Um, talk about how issues of polarization, um, and and especially how we see it happening on on social media. How does that affect people emotionally? And are, are there any studies or have there been any studies looking at how, uh, how that impacts people um, emotionally and psychologically? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I, I'll just say right out th that off the bat that there's no research that I have seen looking at polarization in particular on social media mm -hmm. and how that influences people's mental health. So there's not, it's a, it's, it's, it's should be studied and hopefully mm -hmm. will be studied. But right now, it's not in the empirical literature. But uh, I can speak from personal experience and just observation from what I see with other people is that the problem, I see, the problem with the political polarization that we're seeing right now mm -hmm. is that there's, very, there's no room for you know, uh, any middle ground right, around mm -hmm. issues, that people are so rigidly and ideologically possessed, you might say, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's on the right or on the left, that if anybody just deviates just a little bit, raises a question, wait a minute, why are we, why do we believe this? Why are we asserting this? Then they get mm -hmm. sort of beaten up, you know, by their, by their peers. And it's not very safe to venture far from that group, that your tribe, because the other group is trying to destroy you. So if you get isolated mm -hmm. from your group, then you get attacked uh, because yeah. then you become vulnerable. So I think people are, there's a tribalism going on where people are clinging to their social groups 
and uh, there's a strong pressure to conform. And so we're really where we can draw from here in terms of the empirical psychological literature is social psychology, because we know a lot about group dynamics. I mean, mm -hmm. a century of research on that. And what we find is that you know, there's this in-group, out-group kind of dynamic that happens. Mm -hmm. And then when you get this kind of polarization between groups, people tend to become even more conforming to their group, right? Because they feel they're vulnerable to the mm -hmm. out-group. And then you add something like the pandemic to that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, taking a match, you know, and throwing it on a you know pile of kindling, you know, just the whole thing goes yeah. up. And the reason for that is because uh, something called death salience. So that basically when people are, think about risk or their life is being threatened in some way, it amplifies all these effects. People tend to cling more closely to their group and they tend to become more hostile to outgroups. So I think we're seeing, we already had polarization and then you add a pandemic mm -hmm. on top of it and people having to wear masks and worrying about their health and safety and watching the news every night hearing about how people are dying reminds people of that of that threat to their lives and all that amplifies the polarization mm -hmm. so i think what happens when when people are in those situations when they become conforming is i think that uh there's some interesting experiments that were done way back in the 1960s with a guy named solomon ash some of you are probably mm -hmm. familiar with this where they would where they would take they would take images of lines and with different lines and you had to all the person had to say was which was the longest line i think there would be like four lines it'd be obvious which mm -hmm. line was the longest out of the four mm -hmm. and then they would go through a line a panel and ask each person which was the longest line and so the first few runs these are all actors and there's only one participant but the participant thinks that everybody else is also a participant mm -hmm. and uh, for the few, first few times everybody gives the right answer and then maybe the third or fourth trial the actors give the wrong answer, the obviously wrong mm -hmm. answer. And then mm -hmm. by the time it gets the, to the participant, they have to make a decision whether to go by what they're seeing or to conform to the group. And there's video of yeah. this, some of them on YouTube, that's actually, it's so funny because you see the facial expressions on the participants <laughs> where they're like, what's going on? Uh, <laughs> that it's actually pretty humorous to watch the videos. But generally people react in two ways. Either they, either they start to question their own judgment and doubt themselves and then conform to the group mm -hmm. assuming they must they must be right because mm -hmm. there's some consensus or they don't concede internally but they kind of contemptively resentfully go along with the group because they don't want to cause waves right so mm -hmm. that that that's that was a finding way back in in the late 1960s and I think we're seeing a lot of that. I think people are in some ways clinging to their groups, but they're not, but feeling uncomfortable about that. I think that not always mm -hmm. at one with themselves in the group and, yeah. and feeling like they might have a position where they uh, dissent with their group, but feeling afraid to even talk about it with their in-group because everybody's so, because the polarization is creating increased hostility, they're afraid of being rejected by their group. So I think what you're having is, an old term, you know, that goes back to existential psychology is the experience of alienation, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling alienated, feeling like there's what I'm seeing in social media, what I'm hearing people say, and then there's reality and there seems to be a disconnect between those things. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. seeing a well, lot I, of that. Yeah. And yeah. especially, I, I feel like I've had a number of experiences where, you know, you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone 
and and you you you're saying, well, I don't understand why there's all this polarization. I don't have a com- I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone saying, well, yeah, all this polarization is 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 exact. It's right. <laughs> right. Um, Nobody so, likes so, it, but everyone does. Right. It. Yeah. <laughs> but the one-on-one conversations, you're like, well, I don't understand all this polarization, and yet the polarization is there. But the thing is, when you're having a one-on-one conversation, you're one, you're with a person, you're looking at them, you're you're getting nuance, you're talking, you're you're talking in nuance. But then when you go online, there you you don't have that interaction. You don't have the you don't have the nuance, and so it you have the just the bold statements that people are making right you know online right right and then sometimes i mean i think sometimes i felt this too there's even maybe a pressure within your in group to say something right like this idea that if you don't say something then you're with them so you mm-hmm. feel compelled to say something you don't even really believe sometimes because there's social pressure to do that i felt the pressure yeah. i try to resist that but i felt a pressure many times pressure to do that for my own in groups uh, increasingly within the past couple of years, whether it's saying you're vaccinated or saying you're not vaccinated or saying you should wear masks or saying you shouldn't wear masks or whatever, supporting police or supporting the, this person or that person, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, whether it's political or whether it's around, it, all of it's political in, in one form or another. So I think, but when that, when you have this alienation that starts to happen, you develop what uh, Carl Rogers called incongruency. You start to, you start to, there starts to be a disconnect between your outward behavior and your inward sense of things or your perception of things. Mm -hmm. And when you start to get Mm -hmm. that rift between those two, that creates neurosis. In fact, that's how Carl Rogers defined neurosis. All neurosis had to do with incongruity. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. not being, he thought it was, if you had parents that didn't accept you for who you are, Mm -hmm. didn't really love you, but only loved you under certain conditions, then you start to develop a, an mm-hmm. outward self that conforms to what your parents desire, but inwardly you don't adopt those because you feel like the parents don't mm-hmm. really love you. They're just, they're just uh, want you to be something for their, to meet their own needs. So, and there's some evidence to support that. You know, when people have those kind of relationships with parents, they're more, you know, likely to have depression, anxiety, higher in uh, the personality trait of neuroticism, which is a kind of emotional instability, mm-hmm. and also the, the, yeah. this the difficulty making decisions and orienting one's life toward goals becomes a problem mm-hmm. too. There become yeah. there are problems of motivation, which are closely linked to depression and anxiety and other psychological conditions. Okay. So I think that's that's a danger. So I think in our social groups, because of alienation, we're seeing increased incongruence people are less authentic and because people are being less authentic that makes them susceptible to neurosis depression anxiety etc and it feels like it's a um it's a feedback loop because if you if you then feel like you can't be authentic then when you go online you are portraying something that is not really you and then other people see that and then they say oh wait a second I have to be like that, <laughs> even though I'm not. That there, there's someone in my group, so I need to I need to try and fit in with that, and then and then it, it almost feels like it's it's an avalanche, right? That you right. you have you have people that are trying to put out their their best idealized self that fits in with the group that they're in, 
and then other people say that uh, see that, and then they try and go along with that. Mm-hmm. And so everyone seems to be in this state where we are, um, you know, we're betraying ourselves sometimes even knowingly, right? And 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 then you have this this facade of everyone out there that that doesn't really fit anyone. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we last week we talked about Rene Girard. I mean, he's he, again he's relevant here because he, part of his social theory is this emphasis on mimesis, this mimetic desire that the way we learn to desire is by adopting the desires of others, right? So there's mm-hmm. so there's a what he calls mimetic contagion is precisely what you're describing. These moments when uh, a, a kind of mob mentality emerges where everybody there's a kind of everyone's sort of trying to copy everybody else's desire and it becomes amplified and out of control that's it's he, he sees that as a phenomenon behind for example lynch mobs you know mm. that uh that you see in history of america or other forms of persecution where people come together as a mob and they do things that they would probably never do individually mm-hmm. but because of this mm-hmm. mimetic contagion suddenly they're doing and I think that's what we, social media seems to facilitate that kind of mimetic contagion. In mm-hmm. addition to another problem, of course, is envy, right? Because you see what other people do and then you're like, oh, you know, I want to go on a vacation like that. Or I, why don't mm-hmm. I have a house that looks like that? And people forget that, you know, people don't post their miseries most of the time on social media. <laughs> they only post yeah. the best side of themselves. So it's not good to compare yourself to other people online. The, 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 there every, you know, I can assure you, having been a trained therapist and studying psychology, that everyone is suffering in their own way. You know, it's like mm-hmm. everybody has a cross to bear. And so, uh, and also from a Christian perspective, we're not, we're called not to covet our neighbor's goods, right? And I think there's a good reason right. for that because God knows our tendency to get caught up in this mimetic contagion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> God knows us so much better, better than, than we do. <laughs> than we and ourselves, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, do you think that there is? Uh, do you think you know? I, people talk a lot about, um, especially the younger generation, that they're always on social media and that they don't have the in-person friendships that that you know that they should have. Do you think yeah, that I, plays a big well, part in this? Yes, I think you know it's interesting. I'll, I'll say a couple things about some empirical research on this. One is one thing that's very com- clear and has been replicated in a number of studies over the past year and a half or so, and it's that during COVID nineteen, during the pandemic in particular, mm-hmm. frequency of social media use has been directly linked to increased depression and no increased anxiety and or combination of depression and anxiety and also other mental health conditions but especially depression and depression combined with anxiety uh not just in young people but also in adults and uh so that that i think is something that there's there's so much evidence for now and it's so consistent across cultures first study was done in china but there's been studies done in the UK, United States, Australia, South America. So we're seeing it everywhere. Social media seems to be very toxic for people's mental health, especially during the pandemic. Why? Mm-hmm. I don't think we have a why answer yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're, some of the things we're talking about might give, you know, clue us in as to what might be going on there. Uh, 
But when it comes to generally, when, when people have been doing research on social media, it, there's been somewhat mixed results. In other words, when people use social media, does it make them more susceptible to mental health problems? And the answer to that is the findings are not conclusive on that. There have been some studies that have shown that adolescents and in some studies adults seem that when they more frequently use social media, that it seems to be linked with various forms of psychopathology. Um, there's been other studies that haven't found a link between those at all. Uh, and I think that the trick here is that it's the type of use that you're involved mm -hmm. in. So there's been some new research that looks at when somebody does what they call routine use of social media. That means you go on, you see what's going on, you say, you post something, you post a picture, and then you go on with your life, you know. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be particularly harmful. Or maybe you're doing, you know, maybe you're using, uh, like I, I use social media a lot to share music with people or mm -hmm. to talk with colleagues about an upcoming conference or something like that. It's really, it's not, I'm not like caught up in it emotionally, right? I'm using it mm -hmm. as a tool. But when people are very caught up emotionally, they call it an emotional connection to social media. Like if you're finding that, and I think this is closely connected to some other research looking at addictive uses of social media and video games. It seems to have this kind mm -hmm. of emotional connection. Then mm -hmm. it usually has a compulsive quality, like you have a hard time going to sleep because you can't stop till you're losing sleep. You're not taking care of yourself. You're not exercising like you should. Maybe you're not mm -hmm. eating right because you're spending too much time online. It's kind of taking over your life. And you're having a lot of them. And I would say a good clue is you're just too emotionally attached. That that you, and seems you're to be linked. too many Hot Pockets and Pop-Tarts. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can get back you know, Facebook yeah, or whatever. Quickly. Or yeah. Instagram or whatever it is that you're doing. And there's a number of people who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and some other some other similar conditions are, are especially susceptible to these addictions, especially young people. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I think there's some concern. When There was a study done in, in the United Kingdom where they interviewed 14-year-olds, and there was a pretty much a consensus across the 14-year-olds that social media was problematic, that it was a danger to their mental health and mental health of their peers, that uh, that it could become addictive and that it was a platform mm -hmm. for cyberbullying. So cyberbullying mm -hmm. seemed to be an important factor. Some studies, there's this is another one that's kind of inconsistent, maybe because it depends on where you are geographically. But in the UK, when the studies coming out of the United Kingdom seem to show that women, girls, especially young girls, are more susceptible to getting involved in cyberbullying cyber and being negatively impacted by it, both being a victim mm -hmm. and a perpetrator and suffering mm -hmm. consequences, both on either side of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like British boys don't are less likely to get drawn into that, whereas in, mm -hmm. in America, there's just the opposite. <laughs> it was uh, in one study I found, at least there's one study, it needs to be replicated, but boys are more susceptible than the girls. So maybe there's a cultural thing here, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that there, cyberbullying seems to be an issue, that when people get drawn into, uh, yeah, this is where I think we talked about cancel culture last week. In a certain mm -hmm. sense, there's an element of bullying to this, right? It's a way of sort of mm -hmm. ostracizing people, making them feel left out, isolating them. What's often referred to as social aggression is, uh, yeah. is can, can, you know, Facebook or, or Twitter or 
you know, whatever social media platform you're using can be a platform for that, can be a way to mm -hmm. carry out that, that uh, social aggression. And uh, so those are, uh, that's sort of a summary of the research that I've seen. And then I think based on that, oh, the other thing is issues around self-esteem, concerns mm -hmm. about weight, issues about body image. This seems to be ex really exacerbated by social media. I think for a couple of different reasons. One is there's a really there's a really interesting body of research. I write about it in my book, The Medicalized Body in Anesthetic Culture. There's a chapter on objectification of women that that uh, you know think about pornography, right? In the way mm -hmm. that the internet is, and and really the culture in general is full of images that objectify women, reduce women mm -hmm. to sort of objects of you know a pleasurable abuse. gaze, yeah, yeah. and and an object yeah. of abuse, right? To use yeah. that person, to view that person for your own pleasure without concern for mm -hmm. that other person. That's how I would define that kind of abuse and, and what objectification is. And there's a, I, we could, maybe that's another discussion we could have sometime about yeah. objectification. Yeah. But when you look at objectification, uh, that w it seems to be when young girls and women are online and there's this, you know, there's this, again, maybe some pressure to present themselves in a way that shows skin or that, you know, uh, shows off their physical attributes. There may be some social pressure to do that. And mm -hmm. that can be very debilitating on women's mental health. Mm -hmm. Well, even if they, even if they look fine, you know, even if they're healthy and, you know, they yeah. don't have a problem with obesity or something like that, there is a strong tendency for women to, you know, uh, become susceptible to the kind of things we see with eating disorders where they have distorted perceptions of their own body and social mm -hmm. media can exacerbate that. So we see more social media use, by the way, is associated with bulimia nervosa, increase mm -hmm. in bulimia nervosa uh, for that reason. Um, and there's the other side. The other issue I want to mention, though, is that just also if you're on social media all the time, you, you may also feel bad about your body because you may, you know, you may be unhealthy and you may not mm -hmm. be feel good about how you look because you may need to be thinking about doing more exercise and caring yeah. for yourself. And maybe physically, if you're not happy with the way you look, it could be because you're distorting. It could be maybe you're not happy with the way you look because you're out of shape and you should be, yeah. and that could be a warning sign that you should, you know, back off social media and focus more yeah. on taking care of your health. On, on an encouraging note, uh, there are a few people that are, are, large on on youtube have a very large following and mm -hmm. have and in in the past i would say six months maybe year have become more honest about struggles that they're having uh there, mm. there's one uh there's one guy uh philip defranco who has yeah. uh who has a daily show and he he has he's been really honest about issues that he's had with health um both physical and mental health and um, and how he's trying to take care of himself and really pleading for people to take care of themselves. So I, I think that it's starting to become more, more of a public issue that people are talking about and saying, you know what, it's not, it's not all real. Mm -hmm. You know, all this stuff you see. And the thing about what you're saying about objectification, it's the same thing. They're, they're, they're seeing images that just aren't real and thinking, well, yeah. I, have to, I have to measure up to that. Right. I mean, you literally have you know, photoshopped images, you know, where people have like bodies, 
in magazines and you know on social on social media advertising where they literally have bodies that can't possibly exist physiologically. Yes. Yes. And uh, it's it's ridiculous to try to for anyone to try to compare. It. But that's for men and women. You know, it's like you see these, you know, monstrous people. Usually they get there because they're, you know, usually taking some kind of drug. You know, to uh, yeah buff themselves up like that too so some guys th that's true i want to mention that too that men are less likely to complain about this but we know mm -hmm. based on more implicit measures that men are also susceptible to these issues around body image it's just mm -hmm. a little bit different women tend to be self-conscious about being too big right or yeah. overweight and men are self-conscious about not being muscular enough not being big enough yeah. Yeah. And so men have a lot, men have body image issues too. I think that we, we, we neglect part of the problem is the measures that we use were designed on women's body image and they don't translate mm -hmm. well to men, you know, cause men will say, right. no, they're not worried about being fat. They're just worried about being too right. thin. <laughs> right. Right. How do we then approach this? I mean, I know we can't solve the whole problem of social media, but just thinking right. about what are some things that you can do, especially if you are finding that you are 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 feeling, you know, either depressed or or anxious, right? Um, because of because of your activity on Facebook, because of what you're seeing, whether whether you don't feel like you measure up or you know whatever the the issue is. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think it's a good idea to think about moderating social media use, mm -hmm. and I would suggest based on the studies I've seen, that you start to see the susceptibility to a kind of addictive compulsive behaviors when people are on more than two hours a day, you mm -hmm. know, two to five hours a day. That that might be a sign, unless you're doing it for work or something like that, that maybe uh, it's, it's a bit too much and maybe try to keep it to one or two hours. The other thing is, but, you know, everybody's a little bit different. So I, I think mm -hmm. that you have to figure out what for you means moderating your use. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think one of the things to look at the, is if you have that emotional connection, if it feels compulsive, if it feels like you can't take a break, and if you're not sure, mm -hmm. I would say try to turn it off for a week. Take a social media vacation. I've done this a couple times recently, and it was really interesting because I felt like, you know, just like you have withdrawal when you have an addiction, <laughs> like, you know, not because I check into Facebook in particular, like all the time. And I found when I took a vacation, I was like, I kind of had some withdrawals, like I wanted to check in. Mm -hmm. But then by the end of the week, I was like, who cares about Facebook? It was like, I didn't even feel any need to go back. Uh, so it was a nice kind of withdrawal, you know, withdrawing from a kind of addictive kind of compulsive behavior. And, and it's not that that's not your fault, by the way, don't feel ashamed if you feel like there's something compulsive or addicting about social media, because there are people who are being paid a lot of money who work for Facebook and who work for Twitter, who want you to become addicted because mm -hmm. then you stay online longer and that's how they, they make the make, money they make more advertising dollars. So it's part of the game to get people yeah. addicted. And it's, and it's, uh, for some people that might be, maybe that's so repulsive. You don't want to be part of that world anymore. And I would completely understand that. Uh, but if you feel like, but in the other way, that's, it's hard these days because social media is so much a part of our social world to so just check out mm -hmm. entirely. Moderating is probably a more reasonable. And then, and if you can and then take a vacation and that will give you some perspective on how, 
addicted you are, how hard that is for you to do would give you some help you diagnose yourself, assess yourself about how attached you are. If you have that emotional addiction, then you might ask yourself, one thing I would ask yourself, I suggest you ask is, is this social media addressing some fundamental need? Am I trying to use social media, I should say, mm -hmm. to address some fundamental need I have that social media mm -hmm. really can't address? Mm -hmm. One is loneliness. We know based on research that social media, even though we're interacting with people, it doesn't fill the same need as getting together with people in person, interestingly enough. Yeah. We don't really understand yeah. why. We just know in the research that, that interacting with people on social media and interacting with a person in person is not equivalent in terms of our emotional needs. So make sure you're getting together with family, friends, people mm -hmm. who uplift you and, uh, and you're spending time with people. That's a fundamental human need that we have. Yeah. Just speaking from my own experience, I, you know, like, like we were talking about before, when I interact with someone in person, there's nuance, you know, they, right. and, and I can see, I can see their perfections and their flaws. And, and especially if, if you have a close friend or I think even, even more so a family member, you know, there's someone in your family, you can't hide anything from them. They right. can't hide anything from you. You know all of their flaws. And so, and so the, the, the complexity of the relationship is so much greater. Where right. if you're if you're online, if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you're as we said before, you're just seeing what they want you to see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you don't really get a good sense. It's a distorted picture of other people. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that there seems to be a connection between especially compulsive use of social media and lack of sleep. And when people start missing sleep, that is very deleterious to mental health and mm. to physical health. Uh, and uh, it's so I would say trying to keep in mind, you know, trying to make a commitment to getting seven or eight hours of sleep per night, I think is a really good mm -hmm. decision to do for your health. I feel a little bit of a hypocrite here because I'm not always very good at doing that. Uh, part of part of a life of uh, being an academic is, you know, doing work all the time and trying to get pub things published and stuff like that. But I think over the years, in more recent years, I've really become more mindful about self-care. I was just talking to one of my colleagues today about that and how mm -hmm. we're really trying to carve out time for ourselves and making sure we're getting enough sleep, making sure we're eating well and not just grabbing fast food or, you know, crappy prepared food, you know, like TV dinners or something like that and trying to make a nice, healthy, well-rounded meal, you know, without a lot of mm -hmm. refined carbohydrates and all those problematic preservatives. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, taking time for exercise, taking walks, you know, going to the gym, making that a commitment and part of your, all those things are not just helpful for your physical health. Of course they are mm -hmm. good for your physical health, but they're also helpful for your mental health. In fact, you'll, you'll, ne you almost will never hear, uh, you certainly will not hear a pharmaceutical company advertise this because there's no money to be made from it. But it's a fact that, w that the best treatment for depression in terms of, the quickness of the uh, of the results of the intervention, the cost effectiveness of it, and the robust impact that it has on depression is aerobic activity. People mm -hmm. who do aerobic activity three or more times a day have lower rates of depression, and when they are depressed, they uh, rapidly diminish their depression even more than med if they're taking medication or psychotherapy, yeah, which is yeah. kind of amazing. 
Well, and I, I have to, uh, I have to send a shout out to my wife because she, she is so good at, at noticing when I get home from work and I, I look like I'm worn out and <laughs> haven't had a great day. She'll, she'll look at me. She's like, so have you had any exercise today? I'll uh, say, no, no. But she's like, all right, go, why don't you go out, walk around the block? <laughs> like, okay. I'll go out, I'll walk or I'll jog. And, you know, even for just a few minutes, I'll come back and be like, oh, thank you. Hey, <laughs> I needed that. Yeah, that's great. It really does. That. Yeah, I mean, I do an elliptical. I really started, when this pandemic happened, I really made a commitment because I, what we were, as a family, we were going to the gym, but then that became unavailable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have this elliptical at home and I just do it as often as I can, every day if I can, but it does, sometimes mm-hmm. I can't do it every day. I would say minimum four, three or four days a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's such a when I get it's it's funny because I always feel it's like confession. Catholics will probably relate to this. Like I always feel this like oh, I don't want to go to confession. You know, like you don't mm-hmm. want to go, and then you feel, and then you're either done with it. You feel like you're floating on air. You know yeah. that feeling yeah. of going to confession. Yeah. Uh, it's like exercise the same thing. <laughs> like you, <laughs> you dread doing it, and then when you do I don't it, you're like, do it. Why did I dread that? That was I feel awesome. <laughs> why, why, why do I ever feel like I don't want to do this? I should do it all the time. And then the next day comes, I go, oh, I don't want to do it. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but so I think, uh, I, I really think exercise is very important. The other thing is just, I, I mean, I want to strongly emphasize the spiritual dimension of this as well, because I think having, again, making sure that social media isn't encroaching on your, your prayer life. And if you're not a theist, mm-hmm. if you're watching this and you don't believe in God, there's, there's uh, mindfulness meditation can approximate some of the psychological benefits of prayer. And, mm-hmm. uh, and who knows, maybe if you're skeptical and you don't believe in God, maybe that'll create a space where you might discover God in your life if you leave a little bit of space for it, you know, if you're open to that. But I would say that there, there's some good research that when people have a spiritual life, when they're engaged in prayer, when they uh, provide a space of silence, a contemplative space that that builds a lot of resiliency and i think when that starts to get pushed out in favor of you know social media that's that's also a danger i think this is a good good conversation and uh, and i yeah there are definitely a couple of things uh that we that we touched upon that would be good to come back and kind of dig deeper into uh at a later date but uh brent i wanted to thank you for joining me again today my pleasure thank you it's always Always a joy. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm really. I really enjoy our our conversations. Um, and really delving deep into some of these topics. But thank you, and uh, and thank you for joining us again on this episode of Nerding Out. And uh, I, if you are uh, dealing with any of these issues, find someone to reach out to, um, especially in in person. You know, uh, find uh, some friends or or family that that you can talk to uh if you um if you need help i you know find uh maybe find a counselor to go see or talk to find a priest to go talk to um but just just do something to even make a little change and and try to get some help i uh, i hope you got something out of this out of this conversation i i know i definitely did and uh we'll talk to you and see you again next week all right bye
shut down.